Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Great to have you guys with us this morning. Hey, my name is Ben Stapley. I'm the executive pastor. It's great to be with you. Can't wait to jump into the message. But before I jump into the message, I got a couple of questions for you. Want to do a little bit of crowd work here first. So first of all, Thanksgiving. How many people here uh, enjoyed Thanksgiving, ate way too much food on Thanksgiving? Show of hands. Okay, that's good. Um, if you didn't, you probably were at the wrong house eating Thanksgiving. That is your God-given right to gorge yourself on Thanksgiving. At least one day of the year we can do it. It doesn't add. It doesn't, it doesn't show up on the scale. It's magical. I don't know how it works, but um, that's your God-given right. Okay, first question. Busy, busy a couple of days. Uh, Thanksgiving on Thursday. Black Friday. How many people got some deals on Black Friday? Show of hands. Black Friday. No one. Okay, a couple people. A couple people. I like to um, buy things I don't need with money I don't have on Black Friday. Again, God-given right. Um, I see that hand. You bought a lot of Christmas presents. You're still holding it up. I love it. I love it. Um, last question here. Anybody enjoying the World Cup so far? Anybody enjoying the World Cup? Okay, I got some whoops on that one there. Beyond show hands. Yes, so they normally have it every four years in the summer, but since this year it's in Qatar, a hot Middle Eastern country, like, let's not do it in the summer. And they moved it to the fall, so it's happening right now in case you're unaware. And uh, I can say, as a, as a Canadian, I'm very excited for this World Cup because this is the second time my nation has been in the World Cup. Uh, actually, it's really fun as well being here at TLCC because I know a lot of us here don't necessarily root for Americans. You may have some ancestral background in another country and you root for that country. So it's great to hear who people are rooting for. I'm rooting for Canada. And the bar is really low for us as Canadians. Again, second time. You don't need to laugh that much. You really don't need to laugh that much. We're known for our ice hockey, not so much for our football. But second time we've been there, we were there back in 86. And this year, the goal for Canada, we raised that we not only get there, but this year we're going to score a goal. That, again, you don't need to laugh that much at us Canadians. Last year, uh, back in 86, we didn't scare, score any goals whatsoever. So that was the goal. And um, lo and behold, uh, Canada has been playing Croatia this morning. And I've been refreshing my browser every couple of minutes to see what's happened. And I can celebrate with you this morning that Canada has scored a goal at the World <laughs> Cup. I'm very sorry. Croatia, your time will come. Your time will come. Just not this morning when you're playing Canada. I'm letting you know, call it out. Um, I think they started at 11, so the game continues. If Canada scores another goal, feel free just to interrupt my message. And anybody just yell, goal! It'll, it'll warm my heart. And if nothing else, it'll wake everybody else up during the message. So... You all have freedom to do that if they score another goal. Kind of serious and see if someone takes me up on it. Okay, so that's, that's, where, that's what's happened over the past couple of days. If you're new to TLCC, I want to give some background in terms of where we've been going over the past trimester. We always tackle our, our message calendar with trimesters. And this past trimester, this past fall, we've been in a series called Parabolic. And it's got two meanings in terms of parabolic. First of all, it relates to the parables of Jesus the stories that he told to people. That's the one meaning. And then the other meaning in relationship to parabolic is it has a connotation towards a hidden or a deeper truth. So if you have parabolic glasses, it gives you a particular sight and vision that normally you wouldn't have. If you had a parabolic mic, you can hear things that you wouldn't naturally be able to hear with your ears. And so we're coming at the series and trying to see what is the truth on the surface and then what's the truth underneath it as well. 
The parable that we're looking today is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. So if you wanted to turn to your Bible there now, that'd be great. Also, it's going to be on the screens behind us as we go through, so feel free to follow along that way. It's a great parable. It's a parable about grace, one of my favorite parables. And if you can't be, get excited about grace as a Christian, then maybe I should just leave the pulpit at this point. It's a great, it's a great parable. I'm excited to jump into it. And instead of just reading the passage itself, I wanted to play a video clip that showed some of the cultural settings in which this story happened, because there's some unique things going on here that don't happen in our setting. So instead of me just telling you the story, why don't we watch this video and take a look? When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Said to the woman, said to the prostitute, when it comes to prostitution, there's a lot of different views on how we look at that profession, how we view people who are sex workers. One of the views is ignorantly, 
I, I know I did as a child. Uh, oftentimes when we would drive into Toronto to visit family, we would drive in, I would press my face against the glass to take in all the sights of the big city. I remember one night driving in on a cold Canadian winter night, and we passed by a street corner, and there were a number of ladies standing outside, not dressed all bundled up, but in skirts, and they looked cold. And I asked my mom, what's going on here? Why are these ladies dressed so inappropriately for the weather? I don't think I said it that way, but I said something to the extent. And I remember my mom responded. She said, oh, those are ladies of the, ladies of the night. Yes, and, and, and that answer from my mom did not bring additional clarity to me as a young boy. Ladies of the night. I don't really understand ladies. Of the, okay, that, that kind of begs the question. If those are ladies of the night, well, where are the men of the night? What's going on there? And these ladies of the night, what happens during the day? Like, do, is there a different shift that goes on? Is there also ladies during the day? And I'll, I'll open up a Pandora's box of questions, this phrase, ladies of the night. I ignorantly viewed this profession. That's one of the ways in which we do that. Some of the other ways in which we do that is we idealize what's going on here. Uh, we can idealize that. We kind of clearly see that in the film Pretty Women, the 1990 film. If you're older like me, you've probably seen it. Um, Richard Gere, Julia Roberts. It's a story about a handsome, rich man with a heart of gold that he finds a sex worker in, and he sees her for her inner beauty, and he wants to emotionally connect with her, right? Like it's a, it's a very idealized version of what oftentimes happens in this trade, in this profession. We can view it ignorantly. We can view it um, idealized, or we can view it in a disparaging manner. That's probably like the vast culture would view it that way. If you think of that term, right, you know, prostitution is that term. There are some additional terms for people who do that type of work. Those terms would be crude and cutting and coarse. We at large would view it in a disparaging manner. We see the scene here with Jesus stepping into the video where he steps in and he doesn't view it in an ignorant or idealized or disparaging manner. He views her with sympathy. He views her with sympathy for a couple of reasons. First of all, he knows there's probably two unique things that are happening for her, that she's probably gotten involved in this younger than she should have, and she's probably, or she may, die sooner than she should have as well. When it comes to sex workers, it's a shocking stat, but people get involved at a shockingly young age, oftentimes coerced and outside of their desire and their will. But the average age in America is 13 years old. That's a shockingly, shockingly young number for people getting involved. Beyond that, beyond getting involved when they're young, again, their age and their life expectancy is reduced by being involved in this type of work. I don't know if you know of it, but every job has a life expectancy attached to it. Based upon some professions, some of the life expectancy is a little bit longer, some is a little bit shorter. A little bit shorter, some is understandable, right? Like in law enforcement, they're on the front lines, they're interacting with danger, understandably that their life expectancy might be a little bit lower. Uh, or when it comes to um, people with a higher life expectancy. Guess what? You know, pastors usually have a higher life expectancy. Our, our life isn't usually threatened by the type of work that we do. But there's a couple of unique jobs that have a unexceptionally high and surprisingly high life expectancy, or I guess a low life expectancy. A couple of the ones that do that is, first of all, delivery drivers. Delivery drivers. Out of 100,000 delivery drivers over the course of the year, 26 experience a fatality in the course of the year because of their job. 26 out of 100,000, that's, that's high. That's one of the top five. So this Christmas, if the Amazon deliveries a couple of hours of light, give them some slack. 
give them the stock. They have a, a rough, a physically rough job. Their life expectancy is a little bit lower than the rest of us because of that. Another one that is high is roofers. Roofers, that's kind of understandable, right? If I, if I walk off the stage, I'm going to trip and sprain my ankle. That'll be the worst that happens to me. If you're a roofer and you trip and fall while you're working, you might come off a ladder, you might come off a roof. It's much higher. It's 42 out of 100,000 die in the profession every year because of their trade, because they're a roofer. One of the highest, one of the highest, I was surprised by this, one of the highest, second highest, is fishermen. I didn't realize it's such a deadly job. 132 over 100,000 experience fatality each year because of the job. Which then kind of makes sense why, like, you know, Deadliest Catch as a television show and why it's been on the air for 15 years at this point. The job is still a deadly profession to be involved in. 132 out of 100,000. That's the second highest. Begs the question, what is the highest? Prostitution. They experience 202 deaths in that profession out of 100,000 every year just because they're involved in that trade. They are often involved in it much younger than they want, and they can die younger than they should as well. Jesus is aware of these factors in terms of this woman, probably applies to her as well, and he's coming to her with sympathy. He's coming to her with sympathy. Let's jump into the passage and read some more of it again. Luke 7:36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. There's a couple of interesting cultural things that are going on in this passage that need some additional explanation for additional understanding. First of all, perfume and then feet. First of all, perfume, then feet. So perfume, she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume. Well, what's the deal? What's the importance of this? Why is the author bringing this out? Because this jar of perfume would have costed her a year and a half of wages, about 18 months of salary it would have taken to purchase this jar. For some people, it would have been their life's savings. So she saves all this up, buys this thing, and then she breaks it. It's completely bizarre. Why is she breaking this expensive thing and pouring it over Jesus? Well, in the Middle Eastern culture, a way to honor somebody and to show them respect and admiration was to pour perfume or oil over them. Mostly, oftentimes, it was poured over their head. That's where it was normally due. So the fact that this woman's doing it on his feet is also an interesting factor. We need to come back to that. But she pours it over her, his feet. And so again, people in the culture would see the oil typically over the head, and they would see from afar that glistening hair, and they would know that is a person of honor, that is a person of dignity, that is a person in our culture that we highly esteem. They have been honored with this oil over their head. Beyond seeing them from afar, they could smell them from afar as well. It was something that was pungent and potent. And you could smell the beauty of the perfume from afar. So this woman is pouring it on Jesus' feet instead of his head. Let's explore that. Why the feet? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that feet can be funky. Right? Can we just be honest for a little bit? Feet can be a little funky. Maybe not yours, not yours, not mine, but someone else's feet can be a little bit funky. Right? Our feet get corns, they get bunions, they get athletes' feet. Even if you're not athletic, you can still get, I don't know how that works, but you can get athletes' foot. We, our feet in the 20th century, 21st century, can be a little funky. 
Now, if you rewind the clock, they just get funkier the farther back you go. So go back to the first century, right? They don't have the benefit of, of nice padded socks or cushioned soles with arch supports. No, they don't have any of that stuff. Uh, if, if you were able to afford sandals, you would have sandals, and they would be open-toed, just completely exposed to the elements. So when you walked on the ground, on the dirt roads, your feet would get dusty. Right? Your feet would get dank. Your feet would get dung. Yes, you're walking on the same roads that the animals are going along as well. And at some point, you're going to pick that up. If a donkey's going in front of you, you're going to get some donkey doo-doo on your feet at some point, people. Let's be honest. Feet are funky. They're even funkier back in the first century. So this woman breaks again, breaks an expensive jar of perfume and this thing of honor and pours it over a body part that is not associated with honor, over Jesus' feet. Why does she do this? She does this because she was fantastically forgiven. She had no other way to respond other than to show great honor to Jesus. Even if it's, I can't even show honor to your head because I'm not worthy of that. I'm going to show honor to your feet. She goes ahead and she takes that step. In the summer, the Biden administration rolled out their student loan forgiveness plan, which was Interesting, it was great. They rolled that out, got a number of mixed responses to that. We're, we're forgiving up to about $10,000 for students in terms of what they had in terms of student loans. And some people looked at this and they said, hey, you know, I, I paid all my student loans. Why are my tax dollars now going to pay off your student loans? And maybe looked with it some, some criticism. Other people looked at it and said, no, no, this is great. You know, students are coming out. They're going into a tough labor market. We need to give them some type of a break so they can get into this and get ahead of the curve, not just be saddled with debt for years and years and years. And students, students, students loved this idea. They said, that's great. Best decision the administration has made thus far. Four more years. Four more years. Why? They were excited, right? They were being forgiven some of their financial debt. That's how you saw students celebrate the summer because of that. What happens if we step it up, right? Not just students and a little bit of their loan. Let's imagine with me, imagine that you're a homeowner and your mortgage is forgiven. Your mortgage is forgiven. I heard somebody go, ooh, that sounds good. I like that. I like, you know, a little hush came across the room. Just imagining that got exciting. Okay, so you're, you're at your house and you get a knock on the front door and you open it up and lo and behold, Fanny and Freddie are standing right in front of you. They are actual people I don't know if you knew this, but they're physical people. They're there in front of you, and they say, we are here to forgive you of your mortgage. Not $10,000, not $110,000. We're going to forgive your whole mortgage. Some of you are already envisioning the potential imaginary vacations that you would take if that were the case. And you're getting a little bit excited, and your blood is pumping a little faster because you're imagining what it would be like to be forgiven of your financial debts. This woman is not imagining things. She has been forgiven. None of her financial debts, something more important than that. She's been forgiven of her spiritual debts. That's why she comes to Jesus and says, I need to break this jar of perfume and honor you because a huge weight has finally been lifted off of me. This is what the passage continues to say. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii 
and the other, 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I suppose. I suppose is a great statement. It's like when you, when you externally agree with what someone's saying, but you internally don't want to do it. You know, I ask my daughters, hey, are you going to, it's Saturday, are you going to do the chores? Are you going to clean the bathrooms? I suppose I will. You know, they're verbally saying they're doing it, but internally you know where they really want to stand, right? Simon, Simon's saying that. I, I suppose it's, I guess it's this guy. He doesn't want to affirm it, but he knows it to be true. There's a lot of unique comparisons going on here between Simon and the woman throughout the passage. There are a couple of them. First of all, she was a prostitute, right? And he was a Pharisee. She was wicked and he was righteous. There's some comparisons that Simon's doing in his mind. Beyond those comparisons, they continue. Her sin was external, prostitution. His sin was internal, pride. Her sin was overt and everybody in the community knew about it. His sin was covert, and only he knew about it. Only he knew about it and Jesus. Let's see how Jesus continues to respond in the passage. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I'm going to pause right there, interesting body language, right? So Jesus is talking, talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman. He's saying, Simon, I got something to tell you, but I'm going to to keep eye contact with this woman, but she needs to know this is for her. He turned to the woman But he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poiled perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Greetings have been really interesting in this post-COVID era, right? I think we all remember when COVID first hit, we all got in a panic. Wait, we didn't know what was going on. We're washing our vegetables because we thought that's how we got it. We're, we're confused. And one of the things that quickly changed was how we greeted each other. We're like, oh my goodness, you know, I think maybe we should do something different. Like, what is a safer way to do this? And we, we all kind of, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if there was a memo that I missed, but we all quickly did these. We started doing the elbow bumps. You know, I still want to acknowledge you, and I still want to say hi to you, uh, but I don't want to do it with my hands, and so I'm going to do this weird chicken wing thing. We were all doing this for a while, right? And then it kind of morphed, and then people got a little braver, and said, okay, I don't, I don't want to do that, because this is weird, but I'll do this. I'll, you know, I'll give you a pound. Um, and then after that, you know, the brave ones started coming out of the woodwork. And so it's like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to give you an open-handed, full-on handshake. I'm going to go and quickly sanitize afterwards, but I'm going to get for a minute here, I'm going to do one of these and be really brave. So our greetings have changed, but they stayed consistent in the fact that we kept on greeting each other. And why do we do that? It's because we all want to give honor to somebody else, and we all want to receive honor from somebody else. That is hardwired into who we are. We want to be greeted, and we want to greet. 
We probably did this as well during Thanksgiving, right? Either we went to somebody's house or somebody came to our house. And if you, you went to somebody's house for Thanksgiving, what happened when you got to the door? You rang it, and then you waited for someone to open it and greet you and to welcome you in. Probably pointed out where the food was, probably pointed out where the bathroom was, maybe even put a drink in your hand. They said, hey, it's great to have you here. Thank you for being here. I want to greet you. I want to show you honor. We continue to do that. It's interesting in this passage because there's a stark contrast where Simon is not giving any of this honor, any of this greeting to Jesus, but the woman is doing that. Why is this woman greeting Jesus in such an honorable way? Because she has a clear understanding of her sin where Simon does not. She has a clear understanding of her sin. Now, I know what you say, like the S word, all the oxygen in the room just kind of goes out, you know? Like, oh, we're talking about sin now. Yes, yeah, so Jesus says, hey, your sins are many. He talks about her. But even let me, let me unpack that a bit before we keep going. Sometimes we see sin is, is really weighty and heavy, but it's a pretty simple term in the sense that what it means is we've missed God's glory, that there's, there's a mark and we've fallen short of it, that God is perfection, and no matter how close we get to that perfect, we all fall short of it. None of us fully meet towards God's standard of perfection. All of us, to some degree, sin. It's interesting because God doesn't, um, he doesn't, grade on a curve, right? He doesn't say, okay, there's a, there's a nice bell curve here of sinners, and on one end, you have the really bad sin- None of us, none of us, by the way, none of us. You have the really bad sinners over on this section, and then in the middle, you have the vast majority, okay, maybe some of us here, where we do the moderate amount of sinning, and on the other end of the bell curve here, it's like the really good people. That's who, that's, that's us, let's be honest. That's, that, is God's, that is not God's approach to sin. He doesn't grade us on a bell curve, if he does, he says, okay, you're on a bell curve, but you're all down here. You're all sinners, vastly unrelating and unworthy of my love. He doesn't grade on a bell curve. I remember the first time I heard that concept in school. It was like blew my mind. I was like, what is this? Tell me more. What is this bell curve? I remember it was in grade 11 chemistry class, and this is, you know, I'm going to date myself here, before smartphones, before Google. You couldn't do any of that stuff. And so the teacher is saying, we're going to grade on a bell curve. And there's a little mum rumors and, 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 and talking in the classroom in terms of what is this bell curve? And he explained, okay, like normally, um, you know, the school officials want to see a nice bell curve of grades, you know, some low, some medium, some high, but you all took the test and you all flunk it, and so you're all on the, the very end of the bell curve. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to increase everyone's grade by a certain percentage, and so there's a nice even distribution, and so you're all going to move up. They said, oh my goodness, this sounds, can we grade a, on a bell curve every test? This sounds wonderful. Can we do that every test? And so we were enthused because we all got bumped up. And we all got artificially increased. Again, God doesn't view our sin on a bell curve. No, what does it say in Romans about us and our sin and the consequences of our sin? It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Sin equals death. Physical death, emotional death, relational death, spiritual death. Sin equals death regardless of where you are on that bell curve. It's a story of two guys who had gone into a jungle, and they were both traveling along. And one of them got mauled viciously by a tiger, was kind of ripped up, and ultimately that person over days suffered from their wounds and finally died in a, you know, a painful death. And his traveling, compartment, um, traveling partner was just bitten by a little spider, venomous spider, and they fell over and quickly died. The one person died an ugly 
death, and the other person died a pretty death, but they're both dead. They are both equally dead. And the author of Romans says the same thing. doesn't matter how many sins you've done, how where are you on that boat, we are all equally dead because of our sins. Some of us are sitting here right now, right, with some of the, the vicious sins, murderous thought or revenge in our heart. You know, we have those nasty sins. Or maybe we have the nice ones, the pretty little white lie, a little bit of gossip. But regardless of where we are and what kind of sins we do, we are all, in God's eye, deserving of death. It's interesting because Simeon had a, Simon had a false view of his, his sin, but he had an accurate view of holiness. He's all of holiness in terms of there's two compartments. There's people who are unholy, and there's people who are holy. There's people who are unholy, the, this woman, and there's people who are holy, like me, a Pharisee. So he had an accurate view of the compartments. He put the wrong people in the compartments because at the end of the day, all of us belong in that unholy compartment. And the only person who belongs in that holy category in that compartment is Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're actually able to join him there because of his holiness, and he brings us into his family. So he had an unaccurate view of holiness. In contrast to that, what does the Apostle Paul say to Timothy? He says this in 1 Timothy. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I love that phrasing there. Who I am the worst. Not I was the worst. Back when I used to stone Christians, and I had a different name, not back then when I was the worst. Now, I am still the worst. Now, as one of the most prominent Christian historical figures, the guy who wrote all these letters, all these epistles, the guy on all these missionary journeys, I am still the worst. Paul saw him accurately. In contrast to God, I am the worst sinner. It's interesting in terms of how Jesus interacts with the woman and her sin. He doesn't downplay things here and artificially make it easier for her. He says in the passage, we read it, your sins are many. <laughs> You're not just a sinner, you have many sins, right? He doesn't say, oh, I, I kind of understand because of your nature or your nurture, I understand why you chose in this profession. He doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't progressive, okay? And culture doesn't see this as a sin, so I don't see this as a sin either. No, he calls, calls things out. He said, your sins are many. But how does the passage end? Does it end with her having many sins? No. Passage does a 180. At the end, he says, you are forgiven. Go in peace. Remember, I dropped off my seven-year-old at school the other day, and she didn't say bye to me. She said, Dad, peace out. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, go, go, peace out. Um, she used that word flippantly, right? Peace. Uh, that's not how the word is being used in this passage. That's not how they would have used in this context. Peace would have been shalom, and shalom in this Jewish context would have meant wholeness, completeness, rightness with your fellow human, and rightness with God. Jesus says, when you're leaving here, because of your faith, you are leaving in peace. You are leaving in shalom. You are leaving in wholeness and completeness. Even though your sins are many, because you have faith in me, you are leaving, and you are leaving in peace. Jesus uses a tense that's pretty difficult to translate here. All the grammar nerds are going to perk up here in a second. But he uses a phrase when he says, you are forgiven. That's the perfect, perfect passive indicative. The perfect passive indicative. And there's an idea with this phrase that it applies to the past and to the future. So when Jesus says, you are forgiven, what he's telling her is that I'm giving you forgiveness 
for all the stuff in your past, all your baggage, all your background, you are forgiven for all that. But beyond that, you're also forgiven for the future. So if you go back to your job, if you enter back into prostitution, guess what? You're still forgiven. When you slide back into sin, and you will slide back into sin, guess what? You are forgiven. When you hook up with Judah or Levi, guess what? You are forgiven. There's a sense in this phrase here. When Jesus says you are forgiven, it applies to the past, the present, and to the future. This idea that the task has been completed, but the ramifications are ongoing. When Jesus tells us we are forgiven, it applies to our past, our present, and our future. When I graduated high school, I went to Bible college in Chicago. And when I went there, they wanted you to not only learn about ministry, but they also wanted you to do ministry. So they required every student to be a part of a PCM, a practical Christian ministry. And I got to the sign-up process a little late in the game, and so all the easy ones were already taken. You know, the, the after-school clubs or the nursing home visitation, those were all gone. There were only two that were left. It was prison ministry and prostitution ministry. And I'm like, I don't want to get shivved, and so I'm not going to do the prison ministry. Uh, I'll jump in and do this prostitute ministry and see what this thing's all about. So what happened was, um, every Friday night, two guys and two girls would go. We'd go to the west side of Chicago um, on Madison Street near the United Center where the Bulls played. And we'd go there, and the girls would pray over the ladies. And the guys would be there standing for visible and spiritual support. I say that particularly, visible and spiritual support, not physical support, because an altercation went down, I would not be very useful in that situation. But we would stay there. And to make things really clear in the situation, but sometimes got a little dicey and a little violent, that we would actually wear clerical collars so that the, the pimps knew that we weren't trying to recruit their ladies to join us and for us to pimp them out. And so you can actually see a photo of my father when he joined me, and we, we went out together and did this together. Powerful, powerful ministry that I was involved in for a number of years. But the most powerful night every year was the Friday close to Valentine's Day. Because on this night, instead of being taken out for a man to a movie and a dinner and paid for and the red carpet being railed out for you, no, they, they weren't doing that. Someone wasn't wasn't taking care of them. They were trying to take care of themselves and their financial needs, and they were still on the streets. In fact, you saw the increase on this Friday night as people were looking out for their services. So what we do as a response is a simple but powerful gesture where we go to the ladies and we would bring them a single white rose, and we tell them that they are loved. They are loved. And their response was always the same. The tears would cascade down their face no matter how many years to be on the street or, or potentially how hard their heart had gotten, they would put their arms out and say, can I receive a hug? Can I receive physical affection? And this time without a price tag attached to it. And during that hug, they would wail. They would wail and years of pent-up pain would go up into the sky and echo in the Chicago night. That wailing would be going beyond the Chicago sky. It went all the way up to heaven. Where someone else heard their wails. Not only heard their wails, but wailed along with them. Where their God, their creator, heard their pain, saw their plight, and wailed with them. And said, I didn't design you for this. 
I knit you in your mother's womb, and I have more for you than this pain and prostitution. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have perfection for you. Would you come back into my family? Would you receive my forgiveness and in turn be allowed to go in peace and turn your life around as we sang earlier on? Believers in the room, at one point in time, we wailed. When we encountered God for the first time and accepted his forgiveness, we wailed with shouts of relief. And the pain of holding back was removed. We wailed when our spiritual debt was wiped clean. When we left the kingdom of darkness and entered the kingdom of light. When even though we were broken, we found ourselves being put back together again. When for the first time we experienced God, his goodness, and his grace, we wailed. This morning I want to give us an opportunity to remember that. It's hard because sometimes we experience spiritual amnesia. We forget what he did in the past and we forget how it applies now in the present and down the road in the future. We may have been saved for a year, for five years, for a decade, for multiple decades, but God's goodness to us is still as powerful and impactful as the day that we first encountered him. So let's this morning remember that Relish that and relive his goodness and his grace to us.